I'm Archbishop Alan Vigneron of the Archdiocese of Detroit, and this is the Eyes on Jesus podcast. Hello and welcome to the Eyes on Jesus podcast with Archbishop Alan Vigneron. I'm your host, Mike Chamberland. And I am your host, Mary Wilkerson. We are excited to release new episodes once a month, so please make sure to subscribe and review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Archbishop, welcome and thank you once again for joining us. It's great to be back with you, Mike, and with you, Mary. So good. Great. How, how has been your last month? I know we're warming up in the weather a little bit. Things are, you know, we're past Easter, and I know Lent is oftentimes very, very busy. How has your last month been, Archbishop? Filled with graces. Uh, perhaps most, well, indeed, most significantly, the, this is the time of year for priesthood ordinations. That's uh, a great blessing. Uh, also, we were able to have, uh, with social distancing, a commencement this year for the seminary. Mm. Uh, both uh, the 2020 grads and the 2021, which was Very a real cool. blessing. Oh, you did both. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I made my retreat. Uh, we, uh, the priests are meeting together to move forward with uh, families of parishes. I've been part of those meetings. That's a great blessing. Oh. And I've had the opportunity to uh, offer uh, special prayers, special mass, both for firefighters and then on another occasion for uh, police officers. It's been a little busy for you these last few weeks, huh? Well, it feels good and, you know, things are opening up. Uh, yeah. We're getting uh, a lot of uh, positive uh, direction from the health uh, authorities yeah. about how we can begin to move back toward normal. So, yeah, yeah. it's great. Which feels good. So did you do your personal retreat right after Easter? Is that when you take it? No, I, I did it uh, just a, a week ago. Okay. Typically, okay. Uh, I make my retreat around Mother's Day. Very good. And do you, can you remind me, I think you talked about your retreat before. Do you go off solo when you do that retreat? Just well, by yourself? Uh, this year I did. Uh, okay. Typically, the bishops of Ohio and Michigan, which make up a region in the uh, the way the bishops conference is organized we do some retreat days together and then i would uh, go on my own at another time but this this year we uh, looking ahead we thought we weren't able to be together sure. so i took the time to be by myself okay me oh, and jesus good. and the father and the holy spirit and our lady too so yeah do you travel somewhere i did i went uh, uh, there's a group of sisters uh, that are my friends that uh, have a, a family catechesis center and a farm over oh. outside of Grand Rapids. So I cool. uh, spent the time there on the farm. Beautiful. Nice. I was going to say I was able to see you, actually, at the um, the mass that you had for police officers. I wasn't at the firefighters one. My brother is a police officer, and it was really cool to see uh, Blessed Sacrament Cathedral filled with all these men and women, right, who... Uh, give their lives to such profound service. So it was neat to celebrate that mess and be there in attendance. Well, I hope I was able to be some help to them. I mean, uh, uh, you remember, Mary, I uh, made a reference to the 13th chapter of St. Paul's letter to the Romans with his yep. very clear affirmation that anybody who has authority in the civil order acts as a delegate from God. And certainly that's true for police officers. And uh, so it's a way to grow in holiness, a very yeah. challenging way, obviously, but right. uh, something we need to stand with them. Absolutely. 
Wonderful. Now, I know, Archbishop, you recently did, um, and you mentioned earlier, the ordination. So I know we, we just were blessed to have three new priests for the Archdiocese of Detroit. So we have Father Robert Voiland, uh, Father John Dudek, and uh, Father Zaid Shaban. Um, what was the ordinations like? I know it's obviously a little bit different probably this year than the previous year with COVID and everything. <laughs> yeah. uh, was it how, how did everything go with the ordinations? I think quite well. Uh, it's sort of uh, semi-COVID. Uh, Last year, uh, because of the uh, restrictions, we had a separate ordination ceremony for each man with very limited attendance in the cathedral. Uh, This year, uh, because uh, we have been still under some uh, protocols, it wasn't quite as open as it would be in years past, Mm -hmm. but it was a lot more back to normal. And I mean, always ordinations are a great blessing for uh, for the local church. These mm-hmm. uh, certainly that, but uh, here as we move out of uh, the pandemic, uh, a particular experience of uh, of grace. Yeah, and that's going to be one of the blessings for you as an archbishop. Obviously, is uh, the regular uh, ordinations of priests, and uh, I know it's something that you know. How long have you been an uh, archbishop? Uh, Since 2009. 2009. So that's that's a lot of men that you've ordained over so many yeah. years. So it's got to be a real blessing each time you do it, right? It's a great blessing for me to... Uh, I mean, I love the priesthood, and yeah. uh, it's a great joy to share this grace with uh, men who then will be able to uh, uh, work along with uh, the other members of the presbyterate and me to be of service to people like you and Mary. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's cool to think of the. I, I'm imagining, you know, I've been I've been able to be at a couple ordinations, you know, and I'm always way in the back uh, watching it. <laughs> but it's so it's so profound. Like you can feel the Holy Spirit present. I, it has to be such a unique thing for you as a bishop to be ordaining these men and knowing. Um, all of what they're they're saying yes to, you know, the beauty of it, but also the hardship of it. It's such a, a blended, beautiful thing. Just imagine looking at their faces you get to see as you pray over each one. It's a very profound moment. It is indeed. Uh, but you know, Mary, isn't it the case that there there is no authentic Christian vocation that isn't a, a blend of uh, right. joys and sorrows? Yep. And yep. Uh, that, that's how life is. Yep. Uh, and it's in living as a daughter, a son of God, and all of that, that God is glorified. Yeah, that's so true. I remember on my wedding day before, right before I walked down the aisle, you know, being, having this moment of realizing that I had no idea what the future would hold <laughs> in my marriage. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like thinking there's going to be highs, but there's also going to be lows, you know, and what yeah. you're saying yes to is the whole complete picture of that. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it, there is some similarities, you know, sometimes I oh. think obviously our vocations are so different, but there are some real similar, uh, similarities between them. Mary, I, I really, I mean, I think maybe not so much alike in, in a lot of outward things, but right. I think in the deepest things, yeah. profoundly oh. similar. Right. I even go back to what you were saying. I'm sorry, Mike. I keep interrupting you. <laughs> about okay. police officers, though, like that this is their path or their vocation, uh, their path to holiness, their path to sanctity. You know, all of these vocations that we walk in, whether it's kind of our primary vocation or what we do for a living, the deeper thing happening is it's, it's how we grow in holiness. It's how we, we see God, which is really beautiful when you take a second to think about I've, it. I've been thinking a lot about the, this came from my retreat, the Christian mm-hmm. life is a school by which uh, the Holy Spirit teaches us how to be a, a child of the Father. Mm-hmm. And it's lifelong learning, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, right. Yeah. I'll stop interrupting you now, Mike. <laughs> no, you're fine. It's, I, I just, I, my, my apologies. I, Archbishop, I was just going to ask you that, um, 
you know, I, I know you've done so many ordinations over the years. I didn't know if there was a particular part of the rite of ordination or a particular aspect within the mass of ordination that you found most profound, or, or especially on your position as an archbishop to well, uh, doing the ordination. Is there an aspect that you find most uh, compelling or uh, Well, the profound? most, t- to me, the most touching, the most poignant moment is when I impose my hands on uh, mm. uh, the man to be I'm ordaining. I mean, this is a, an ancient gesture. I mean, you can read, it's witnessed throughout the Old Testament, a, a way to call down God on, uh, on an individual, on a sacrifice. On an, it was in the temple, in, on an animal sacrifice, to impose hands, to call down the Spirit. And when I do it, I mean, it's such a simple gesture, but I think about how many times it's been repeated, mm. and this unbroken uh, line that I continue that goes all the way back to uh, uh, the apostles, mm-hmm. where you read, for example, the imposition of hands on Matthias or the imposition mm-hmm. of hands on the on the seven uh, new deacons, that sort mm. of thing. Well, I'm excited about today's podcast topic. We're going to be discussing the domestic church. This topic is particularly timely because we are coming, uh, it's coming to you during the year of St. Joseph, the month of May, which is the month of Mary, the year of the family, celebrating five years since Amoris Laetitia, and in addition, this episode comes just a few months before the first World Day for Grandparents and Elderly on the fourth Sunday of July. So Archbishop Vigneron, can you start us off by talking to us about what we mean when we say the domestic church? Sure, Mary. Glad to talk about it. Uh, I think probably the most helpful place to start is the with the, the Second Vatican Ecumenical Council's uh, uh, decree on the church, uh, constitution on the church, in which it described and kind of canonized the term of the family as a domestic church. I did a little bit of research, and I found that uh, Saint John Chrysostom even used this title. Maybe the, the root of it goes back to the time when the church was in her infancy, and the only church was the d- domestic church, the church that met in, in households. Uh, uh, we weren't able to, we just hadn't grown to the point where even were it legal, we would have been able to have our own buildings. Right. Uh, we weren't that large. But I think what the Second Vatican Council was saying is that uh, the family is the church in, in microcosm. It's yeah. a place of communion and a communion that's established by, uh, by love. And we have to be careful today when we talk about love, a lot of people misunderstand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for us uh, disciples of Jesus, love is, is defined by the cross and the resurrection, paschal love. Mm-hmm. So the family is a place where a husband and wife make a paschal commitment to, com- uh, to be uh, sacraments of, of Christ in the church. And uh, it's a way then that they live in communion with the Holy Trinity. And mm. like the Trinity itself, this, this communion is open to uh, more people, particularly yeah. it's the family. And so this reality has a mission, uh, which is part of the mission of the church, to share the faith and to form new members for the life of the church. I think this mission is both uh, to within and, and to without. Uh, uh, husbands and wives have a mission to one another, to support one another in their discipleship on the path of, of holiness. Uh, they have a mission for the children. And 
Children have a mission to their parents, too. Uh, it depends on where they are in their own age. I think uh, uh, maybe the mission of a, of a one-year-old is to demand <laughs> love. <laughs> but the mission of a 30-year-old to parents is a very different reality. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's a mission to the wider world, especially, especially I think, the mission of uh, families to other families. This is really important. Uh, everybody wants to have a happy family. And by happy Christian families witnessing to the joy that comes from the gospel, I think they, they make the gospel attractive to, to other people. Yeah. It's such a neat thing that the church has put such a, a value and importance on this. Have you seen during this pandemic year the family take on kind of a new role or be highlighted with this understanding of domestic church? I'm even thinking about the fact that, you know, for a couple months we were worshiping by watching mass on television and making spiritual communions, right? So how did, how did you see um, as our archbishop that kind of being um, changed or highlighted during the pandemic year? Well, what I've heard from the field, from the parish priests and their co-workers, is that uh, moms and dads, families have uh, stepped up to the plate in, the, in this time of, of pandemic and been even more attentive to be sure that uh, they share faith, that they share uh, uh, prayer, and share uh, the commitment to, uh, to trust in God's providence. And... Uh, People have been very creative, very innovative mm -hmm. uh, in how they gather as a family. I've also heard accounts of people taking advantage of uh, uh, the shutdown to, to spend more time together and be more engaged each with the other. I think that was one of the, the hidden blessings of the pandemic was um, if we were able to be intentional about it, uh, having the rhythm of our family kind of return to a simpler time where we were able to, you know, pray together more and just spend time together. We couldn't go anywhere else, right, except for <laughs> the four walls of our home. And so we got to see that in a neat way. A little bit like uh, uh, becoming a, a community of hermits devoted to pr <laughs> prayer and contemplation. <laughs> right. <clears throat> It's funny, I, the uh, Detroit Catholic, right at the beginning when we found out that uh, public mass was going to be suspended, they did an article and so many families were even building like prayer spaces underneath their televisions with icons and crucifixes to be able to join together um, and worship with their parishes virtually, you know? So it was neat to see how some of that, I don't know, became more concrete or more tangible in this year. And what the sociologists tell us from their own studies, Mary, is that uh, that extra attention that ch the that sons and daughters notice uh, mm -hmm. makes a profound impression on them. Mm -hmm. That if their moms and dads take this much care, it must really be important, and there's something here to be treasured. That's great. Mm. Archbishop, I know you mentioned that the domestic church really can apply even going historically back to like, um, you know, the early, very early church where churches, we didn't have church buildings, we worshiped in homes and spaces like that. Does this, uh, does that term really apply to all families? And what I mean by that is even single people or couples who don't have children and um, even yourself, you know, a, a celibate uh, bishop. Um, how, how does that relate, uh, that tie into the idea or concept of domestic church and family? Well, yes, everybody's got uh, some sort of familial relationship, uh, and unless, of course, a woman or a man is an orphan uh, of uh, 
many can happen that people don't have particular blood re relatives, but by and large, we all have some familial relationships. I mean, I think the place to start in thinking about that, Mike, is to think about the template, uh, the paradigm of uh, the family, which was established at creation with Adam and Eve, husband and wife, told to be fruitful and multiply. And so what we in sociology talk, describe as the nuclear family is the sort of the, the central image but it isn't, uh, the, it isn't the only uh, uh, reality. Out of that, lots of other things grow. You can have families in, in an analogous sense, uh, people who b uh, live that paradigm in, in other ways. Uh, that's what's really important. And it really is about uh, being in a communion, in, in a, uh, an intimate, home-like Home, homely communion that is open to other people. And uh, we know lots of people, I know a lot of families that are very generous in being sure that a friend or a neighbor who otherwise seems to be without family has the joy of uh, familial relationships. I think well, that's the best way to think about it. Not to, not to uh, uh, hold up models as uh, uh, competition for one another, but to see the, them as uh, uh, other forms of uh, family outside of the paradigm uh, to share in the identity and also the mission and the challenge of the, of the template family. You know, I just read an article recently that was talking about how, how priests, specifically, and bishops, you know, uh, they're thought of as not really having a family, or, you know, when they're asked to speak on matters of family life, and it's kind of like, well, why, why, why are you speaking on this, you know? Uh, but the article... Because I article. had to wait in line to use the toilet, too, like, just like yeah. everybody else. Oh, that makes me laugh. Oh, we have a true. very small house with one bathroom, and my children are always waiting in line. <laughs> yeah. That's well, family, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. 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 Or well, have to eat what's put in front of you and not complain and uh, to do your chores. And, yep, yep. I mean, it, it's about a life together. It's not, uh, not some sort of fantasy world. Yeah. But go ahead, Mike. I interrupted. No, no, it's I just okay. couldn't help it. No, it's fine. <laughs> the article was uh, was kind of going on to say. Obviously, you guys come from families, of course, priests and bishops, but stuff. But it was also mentioning that you know you oftentimes you wear rings uh, that are to designate that you are the father of a family, and it looks a little, a little different than that nuclear family. But just as a, as a regular father would lay down his life for his his wife and his children, that's what priests and bishops are called to do, of course, as well. So it's, it might look a little different, but you are definitely part of uh, that pair family or a larger context, which I thought was just a good reminder to me of, of um, on a different pitch or a different level, you're, you're doing the same thing as us, just looks a little different, you know? Right. It, it's uh, like I was, as, as I was expressing it before, the, uh, uh, the, the family as the, the, the Lord created it, the template uh, serves as the measure for so many other relationships. Uh, mm. so, uh, you know, a priest is called father. And uh, I mean, we're, we're taught and it's drummed into us that this is not about being uh, um, an on-your-own-do-as-you-wish kind of bachelor, mm. but just like uh, a, a husband and a father belongs to his wife and children, yeah. and uh, their good is his first call. That's what it means to be a priest, to be a spiritual father. 
I've never heard it put that way. That's really beautiful to oh. think of it in that context, you know. Well, it can be, it's a challenge, isn't yeah. it, uh, yeah. always to be owned by somebody else. Uh, I mean, Mary, you must have some days when you want to change your name from Mama. Archbishop <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting in my van yesterday after we got home from church, and my husband said, why are you sitting in the van? And I said, I just need a minute before I go into the chaos. I just need to collect myself. <laughs> so absolutely, that's, and I guess the way that you just highlighted, it's interesting to think about the similarities of the obligation to, you know, your parishioners as a priest or, um, or to the church, right, as your bride, um, that it's similar to the obligations that Mike and I hold within our marriages and in our families. Exactly. And uh, uh, it's the foundation of so many other human realities. I mean, uh, this is the way God made the human being, human mm -hmm. persons. Uh, male and female, he created them. Uh, this is the point St. John Paul gets at when he talks about the nuptial meaning of the body. Everybody's made for this kind of relationship, this mutual giving and receiving. And it's not, it's not like the romance channel. It, right. Right. I mean, we all recognize that <laughs> yes. it, it, it's about the day in and day out fidelity mm -hmm. of uh, taking out the garbage and going to work and uh, for the priest, you know, do, doing his duty, being patient with the people that he otherwise uh, finds it difficult to be patient with. Uh, this is, I, I have a, a, a young, well, he's not so young anymore, a man I, I knew when he was in med school, he's a physician. He said, nothing makes you grow up as fast as having kids. Oh. You, have to, you have to become the adult then. <laughs> You know, I know that our church has for a long time held up uh, the Holy Family, obviously, as a great model and inspiration and guide for us as families. How has that personally inspired you, the idea of the Holy Family and reflection on that, Archbishop? Well, particularly in this year of St. Joseph, it's been an opportunity to think more about the, the figure of St. Joseph, and especially his role as the, the custodian, the guardian, the, the trustee of uh, the family of Christ. And I think that's an example for uh, fathers in marriage, and I think it's an example for priests in particular. But you know, it's an example for grandfathers. It's an example. Joseph is an example for uh, for uh, for uncles who do right. a lot of uh, fathering. I think. Well, we're going to kind of uh, pivot just a little bit and talk about the fact that this last year, Pope Francis announced that we would celebrate the year of Amoris Laetitia, the year of Amoris Laetitia family, named after his apostolic exhortation that was released five years ago on March 19th in 2016. This special year that he announced began on March 19th of this year, and it's going to conclude on June 26, 2022, with the World Meeting of Families in Rome with the Holy Father. So I'm going to ask you a tough question. If you can kind of sum up Amoris Laetitia in just a few sentences or a few thoughts, what would you say that this apostolic um, letter is about or exhortation is about? I think it uh, uh, highlights once more uh, themes that were already uh, put out in front of us, re recapitulated in Lumen Gentium, in uh, uh, the decree on the life of, of the laity. Uh, that 
about the universal call to holiness Mm -hmm. and that uh, marriage is a particular call to holiness. And so the Holy Father recapitulates what's happened in the decades since the Second Vatican Council Mm -hmm. and uh, puts it back in the center of our awareness, particularly in a time when the life of families seems so challenged. Right. And there are so many uh, doubts raised about the worth of family life. We live in a profoundly individualistic uh, culture. And mm-hmm. I think the Holy Father wants to recognize the challenges that families face and uh, holds up, up again the, the, uh, the vocation of uh, family life. And then I think on the point of Amoris Laetitia, one of the points after doing all of that is to challenge us pastors, bishops and priests and deacons, and really the whole church, eucatechists as well, right. to think about what we need to do to be supportive uh, uh, for families as they face, as they try to live out their vocation. Mm-hmm. I don't know, that's, that's a long summary, Mary, but that's no, the best No, I think that was a great summary. You know, when I remember when it came out, because so many people were anticipating what would be in the, the document, and it ended up being such a beautiful, I think, kind of exhortation to us all to live the reality of family in a deeper way and, and to be... Um, you know, to be intentional about the way that we're loving each other. And so uh, when I'm going to ask you one more follow-up question, if that's okay. From the letter, Amoris Letizia, what exactly would you describe, or what is an example of an Amoris Letizia family? Like, so we announced that this is what the year was going to be called. What does that look like? I think it's a family of service mm. where uh, everybody serves everybody else. Uh, there's... Uh, uh, not just takers, but everybody's a giver. Now, that means everybody takes, too. Everybody mm-hmm. is the uh, recipient of love, but it's uh, it's reciprocated. I think it's a family where... Uh, the, it's, it's a family in which the members put the community of the family first. I think that's a great way to describe it. Even when you were talking about the one-year-old uh, just a few minutes ago, I was thinking about how my little ones, the babies, have taught me something profound about service, right? So, And I know a lot of mothers have shared that too, the, the way that um, you, you think of children as evangelizers as they get older you know, and start to speak and ask questions about God. But that, that real raw that we're here to serve one another becomes so clear when lived out in the family, I think. Mary, at, at what what point in, in your, your children's uh, maturing uh, do you try to get them to be helpful? I mean, I think that's something that I see that's really beautiful. Uh, I, th- I think almost instinctively kids want to help. I yes. mean, and, you know, the, you, you get a little a mini vacuum or uh, get a dust cloth. <laughs> totally. uh, Yes. I mean, when, 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 when's the time for that? I mean, maybe oh, as Archbishop, soon as possible. That's what you said. <laughs> right? It starts right away. And, you know, one of the challenges is allowing for that help. Because even now, you know, my kids are getting a little bit older. And when I'm preparing dinner, they'll be like, Mom, can I help you with dinner? And, you know, sometimes, Archbishop, it makes it a longer process when they help with dinner. <laughs> It's like stopping and, and giving them those opportunities because, like you said, from the time they're two or three, they're asking to sweep, they're asking to fold, you know, the towels with you, and so kind of inviting them into that and seeing that as a real moment to educate on serving one another. You know, mm. it's it's this conversation is really highlighting for me 
that when we approach those things and connect it to gospel truths, they become so much more profound, you know, even folding the towels. Yeah. Yeah. What are some ways that you think families can strive to build up their domestic churches? So have you seen, you know, a couple families that really just show you what it is to live domestic church and what are some things that they do? I think praying together, uh, praying out loud, uh, uh, and especially uh, some, a spontaneous prayer, uh, shared prayer, that uh, really gets to, to what's important for the members of the families. I think that's, that's at the heart of it. Uh, also uh, sharing uh, parts of the sacred scripture. I think being engaged in, in service but doing it quite intentionally uh, with uh, an explanation of what's going on, I think that's also important. And uh, opening up the circle of the family when that's appropriate. I mean, it can't, it, it's not always, if I were a, a dad, I would say, well, we need some of our own time. We can't right. always uh, have uh, the neighbors or yeah. uh, even your cousins. We, sure. We've got to have some of our own time. Yeah. But we should be generous in what we have. And mm-hmm. it isn't necessarily so much the things we have mm-hmm. as the, the love we have and peace in our family. I think those are important. You know, Archbishop, uh, obviously Pope Francis, is, there's a lot surrounding the family in these last couple of years. Obviously, he wants us to kind of relook at Amoris Laetitia. Uh, obviously, we had the year of St. Joseph, this coming year of the family. Um, do you have any thoughts on why Why do you think the Pope Francis would would put all these kind of celebrations back to back, and then also the celebration of grandparents as well. Um, do you think there's something stirring in his mind as far as why he would focus so so strictly on this these these coming years? Well, I have to infer that there is, uh, Mike. It seems to me pretty logical to to uh, make that uh, inference. Uh, I, I presume it's from his own knowledge of. Uh, the situation of the church and obviously we think about how the life of the christian community is lived here in the united states but he sees it uh, throughout the whole world mm-hmm. and uh, it has to be of concern for him in every part of, of the church obviously with that focus on saint joseph that's obviously very focused on you know kind of that spirit of fatherhood and uh adoptive fatherhood uh and then obviously the look at a more is more of a look at the family um, obviously there's an obvious connection there between fatherhood and family life. Um, do you think there's something maybe more going on as well, like uh, that he's trying to point us to as far as a connection going there? With St. Joseph? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it, it's not just that Joseph is an example, but uh, it points us to the Holy Family and that every family can be and is called to be a kind of an incarnation of the Holy Family, a, a new, you might say, a sacrament of the Holy Family. And uh, it, that's both a consolation and a challenge, I think. Oh. It, uh, it, it helps us understand that the family is not simply a utilitarian reality. I like that we've talked about St. Joseph and, and obviously the... Um the letter Amoris Laetitia. And then we're discussing this in the month of May, and the month of May is my favorite month for a whole bunch of different reasons, but we also say that the month of May is the month dedicated to Mary. And clearly, uh, 
our Blessed Mother has such a heart for families and can be such a tool for all of us to live our families in a more holy and intentional way. Do you know why May is dedicated to the Blessed Mother? Like why it's this month? Mary, I looked it up in the encyclopedia and the author says nobody's sure. (laughs) It's just uh, something that's grown in the life of the church and in our common awareness, it makes a, a great deal of sense. And the author speculated that it has to do with uh, the sweetness of the month and the beauty of it. It, It's a a great joy to be delivered from the harshness of winter, Uh and we don't have the intense summer. We've got a lot of beautiful flowers, and it seems just like the right time to think about uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Yeah. It seems like you always talk, uh, you always share up my faith, faith when you discuss the Blessed Mother. So I wanted to ask you kind of at a personal level, what are some things that you've done in your life or, or currently are doing that kind of um, strengthen your devotion to the Blessed Mother? What are ways that you have increased that devotion in your life by getting to know her? How do you do that if people are listening and want a deeper relationship with the Blessed Mother? Well, two things. I mean, I think go, especially if one has... Uh, childhood experiences uh, that are prayerful and and a sense of devotion to Our Lady, and most of us do, I think to go back and recapitulate those, capture them again. Sometimes uh, these memories grow dim, uh, but there was something, there's a treasure to be mined there from the early experience of the motherhood of of the Blessed Virgin. For myself, uh, it has to do with uh, a devotion my parents uh, shared with me that they had which is to Our Lady of Perpetual Help uh, in our parish in Anchorville for the nine days before the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, uh, Father would have a, a redemptress priest come and preach the novena. Oh, wow. And my parents were very faithful to that. Uh, now they couldn't both go to church at the same time because there were little ones in the house. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they did the relay. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I know that well. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, when I was old enough to go, I went with them, and uh, I saw how important that was to my mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can still hear my mom saying in times when she was worried about something, Our Lady will help us. She'll take mm-hmm. care of us. Oh. And the other thing was uh, a devotion to Our Lady that was fostered by uh, the sisters in school. We had, you know, urged to have a May altar, mm-hmm. um, those, uh, those practices. So. I mean, I, I think to for me, part of it has been going back and picking up on the in, impulses of, of my childhood. Today, it has to do with uh, making Our Lady very much a constant theme in my daily prayer mm-hmm. and uh, uh, making that sense of her, her protection part of uh, what I do hour by hour. Mm. And uh, through my involvement in the... Uh, Order of Malta, I have uh, reignited my devotion to Our Lady of Lourdes. I love when you speak about Our Lady of Lourdes. It's just very obvious to to see um, your love for her. Um, And just as one follow-up question to our Blessed Mother, because we are talking about the domestic church, how do you think uh, increasing a devotion to the Blessed Mother can help to strengthen our domestic churches? Well, <clears throat> I think to have have that devotion and to share it in the family is very important. Uh, I know uh, of some friends who say a whole rosary is pretty tough for the whole family, <laughs> but a, a decade, right? I think, might be the way to begin, and then 
let who can uh, finish it on her own, his own later, but mm -hmm. some kind of uh, shared uh, ex external devotion. I think uh, a picture, a statue of Our Lady prominent in the home is very important. Mm -hmm. And uh, just for, especially for moms, but especially for the dad mm -hmm. to, uh, to at least talk about the la Our Lady as part of uh, the family circle. Mm. That's good. I remember growing up, I would we would pray the rosary on Sunday nights as a whole family. And as, you know, as middle school and high school children, sometimes that was tedious. But I, I think in some ways, I, I don't know, I, there's a lot of elements that go into life. But um, I'm one of six children and all of us uh, right now are practicing Catholics, which is sometimes unheard of, um, that we kind of live our faith with, you know, all six of us siblings. And I wonder sometimes if that's because my, my parents were so intentional about kind of entrusting our family to the protection and um, to the devotion to Our Lady, you know? You know, before we conclude, we'd be remiss if we didn't really um, mention, obviously, grandparents and their importance in family life as well. I know we're about two months away from celebrating the first World Day of Grandparents and Elderly on July 25th. Um, and I know personally, just from conducting many confirmation interviews over the many years I've done ministry, uh, so many of these young people coming in for confirmation interviews really mm -hmm. highlight the importance of grandparents and what they mean to them, and oftentimes they're chosen as sponsors. Um, Archbishop, you know, what, what do you think as far as the importance of considering grandparents and the elderly when we talk about Catholic families specifically? Well, I think it's, uh, you're absolutely on the mark, Mike. Uh, I mean, it's my own experience, how important uh, my grandparents were in, in my life. Uh, when I think about my own passage to the Father's house, I think one of the great things is going to be reunion with my, with my mm. grandparents. Mm. Uh, I think uh, what you have are uh, uh, adults fully grown up who at the same time aren't quite as, uh, uh, I don't know, intense in their adultness as uh, moms and dads have to be, you know, grandparents can be grown up and at the same time uh, yes. uh, a little more uh, flexible and indulgent. Yeah. Uh, totally. When you hear grandparents say, oh, that's my job, you know, exactly. you make them behave, I'll just enjoy them. Yeah, uh, and and I and grandparents do make their their grandchildren behave, but it sure. doesn't have to be quite uh, quite as intense. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think that that it's important to have a, a whole range of uh, of bonds between young people and, and adults. And grandparents mm -hmm. have uh, a profound closeness that uh, is, is particularly warm, I think, mm -hmm. and, and non-threatening. The Holy Father, Pope Francis, he's, I've heard him talk about his grandmother quite a bit and how much she impacted his faith, you know, and so it's really beautiful to see when that, um, you know, all comes together as it should. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add to the topic of domestic church before we close this conversation? Well, I think, uh, in, you know, the, the moms and dads, uh, the families who might listen to this, if you'd particularly pray for your pastors and those who work with them in the pastoral care of your community, uh, that we do a good job and help help you walk your way in holiness. It's a, it's a big responsibility. Awesome. Thank you, Archbishop. 
Well, we've come to the point in our podcast where we get to ask you, Archbishop Vigneron, questions that were submitted by the faithful. If you're listening and you have a question, we would encourage you to email eyesonjesuspodcast at aod.org. When you email us, be sure to include your name, your parish, and of course, your question. So Archbishop, the first question comes from Eileen at St. Francis Cabrini. And Eileen asks... You were in the high school seminary during Vatican II and in minor and major seminary during the, during the implementation. What was it like to go through formation during this historic time in the church? Chaos. I bet. <laughs> I bet. Oh, well, uh, I came to the seminary, high school seminary in September of 1962, which was a month before the council began. Wow. And... Uh, my experience in those years, those first years in the high school seminary, would have been uh, very similar to the experience of my great uncle, who was a priest. Mm. But over the years, things shifted radically. Uh, the council yeah. called for change. Uh, people who directed the change weren't always sure what it ought to look like. Right. And so uh, we were the objects of lots of experiments. <laughs> and yeah. the way to make it to move forward was to uh, focus on the essentials. Keep my eyes fixed on Jesus, really. Yes. Oh. And, uh, hang, and uh, be faithful to the, the basic elements of uh, what, what, it, what it means to be a priest and how one becomes prepared for the priesthood. Right. But it was... Uh, it was a time of, uh, of great uh, shifts, let's put mm. it that way. I don't know mm. if anybody, you know, you're both too young to think about 1968, oh. but the 1968 was, for my, in my mind, this sort of the epitome of, of these challenges. It was the time of the student rebellions in Paris and throughout the United States. There was mm. unrest on campus. Uh, a lot of it had to do with the war in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, there was the uh, very significant dissent from uh, Humane Vitae. Mm. Uh, it, uh, it was a time, uh, it, it was a time of uh, tempering, I, mm -hmm. I, I would say. Yeah, it's interesting. Now, I just in modern day, whenever there's, you know, a document released from the Vatican or something, there's always such debate and conversation in church circles. And sometimes conversation isn't always charitable, and it can get really intense. And I'm wondering, you know, as, as you were in seminary, if with some of your fellow seminarians, like, was there debate about where to land on these things and confusion? And what was that like? Yeah. Yeah. Debate and confusion. <laughs> I That's bet. Right. Well, and people landing in different kind of categories and seeing things differently. But I love that you you noted that you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus during that because that's oh. I, I've found a lot of comfort in that in in the modern ages we kind of I don't know live in cultural chaos. That as long as I keep my eyes fixed on Jesus through the teachings of the church, I I do feel more grounded. Man, I would love that could be a whole podcast topic right there, Archbishop. Totally. I'd love to hear all about your experience going through that because yes. uh, I think, you know, not unlike today, I mean, I think obviously there was a different thing. There was a council, of course, but um, just, you know, what led to all of the confusion? Because I think, yeah, there's just a lot there that'd be great to discuss, you know, so. Let's make yeah. a note for the future. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Well, Archbishop, I have a question here from Nancy uh, at St. Patrick Church, uh, and she asks, um, if you were left on a deserted island with only one sacramental, what would it be? Wow, that's, uh, mm. you know, first thing that comes to my mind is holy water. 
hmm. as a way to uh, uh, remember my baptism. And I think uh, I use holy water as a way to sort of even physically extend the boundaries of the kingdom of God in, in hmm. my room and in my living space. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, you know, I, I'm told I can only have one thing here, but... And you can turn water into holy water. Yeah, right. So I'm just saying, like, with the genie in the bottle asking for more wishes, I think you should go in a different direction. <laughs> a, a crucifix, I suppose. Yeah. All right, so our last question is from Peggy at St. James in Novi. Peggy says, you have a great devotion to the Blessed Mother, which we've spoken about before. What is your favorite Marian feast day and why? Oh, this is another tough one. The one I guess I would hold up is the Feast of Our Lady's Visitation mm. because it's about uh, her work as an evangelist. Mm. Uh, she, she brought the good news, the Word of God incarnate uh, to, jo uh, to Elizabeth and Zechariah and especially to John the Baptist. So I think that, that's, a, that's a really important feast day. I got to tell you, I thought you were going to say Our Lady of Lords. I'm so surprised. So did I. I had but to peg for Our Lady of Lords. I know. See, he's always learning. Always learning more about the Archbishop. Well, Our, um, Our, Our Lady of Lords is a great day to remember the, how she came as an evangelist uh, to the 19th century and to our time. Mm -hmm. But uh, part of me thinks that uh, my answer needs to be conditioned by going back to the New Testament. Sure, yeah. Oh. I think Our, Our Lady of Lords is... Uh, a new uh, manifestation of Our Lady at her visitation to Elizabeth. Yeah. Mm. When you're going to the iconic template of her evangelistic work, in a sense, yeah. you know, I mean, everything else has been, yeah, beautiful. Well, Archbishop, thanks so much again for being with us and for, for taking the time to share uh, your thoughts, your reflections on these topics. I wonder if you might be willing to share with us any um, special requests or special prayer requests that we can offer for you on your behalf. Yes. Uh, I mean, the, the, these are days when there's a, a great challenge to be faithful to uh, uh, God's plan for the human person, that I be a good leader for the church. Uh, that the Holy Spirit give me the, the graces and light I need to uh, proclaim the good news about God's plan for the human person against so many voices that uh, contradict that. Amen. You got it, Archbishop. And Archbishop, would you mind if uh, you would closing us with a, with a closing prayer and blessing? Happy to do that. I have a prayer for St. Joseph right here. It's actually the text I keep at my desk from... Uh, Pope Francis's uh, letter on Joseph. St. Joseph, guardian of the Redeemer, spouse of the Blessed Virgin Mary, to you God entrusted his only son. In you, Mary placed her trust. With you, Christ became man. Blessed Joseph, to us too, show yourself a father and guide us in the path of life. Obtain for us grace, mercy, and courage and defend us from every evil. Amen. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon all of you, the listeners, and those they love, and remain with us forever. Amen. 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 Thanks, Archbishop. Stay tuned for the next episode of Eyes on Jesus, a new episode every month. And if you enjoyed listening, you might also like Detroit Stories, a new podcast from the Archdiocese of Detroit. Find it on your favorite podcast app.